0: Hello, I'm Emmy Vadness, and I'm delighted to invite you to join me for my Intuitive Development How to Trust Your Inner Knowing class. We'll meet for four Saturdays starting October 28th on Zoom Live Video. There's a special discount for new Thinking Aloud volunteers. I'll personally guide you to connect with your heart, enhance decision making, and empower yourself. Ready to embark on this transformative journey? Visit emmyvadness.com to learn more and reserve your spot. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is Is There Life After Death? New Thinking Aloud is a nonprofit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome, I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Yoga Wisdom for Modern Seekers. My guest is Rizwan Virk, who is an entrepreneur, video game pioneer, film producer, venture capitalist and computer scientist. He was the founder of Play Labs at MIT and is currently working on his PhD and teaching classes at both the College of Global Futures and the Fulton Schools of Engineering at Arizona State University. He is also an advisor to the Galileo Project. He is author of The Simulation Hypothesis, an MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics agree we are in a video game. Startup myths and models, what you won't learn in business school, treasure hunt, follow your inner clues to find true success. Zen Entrepreneurship, Walking the Path of a Career Warrior, and Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. Riz has been interviewed two times previously on New Thinking Aloud and I'll link to those interviews in the upper right corner of your screen. Riz is based out of Tempe, Arizona and is currently in Mountain View, California. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome Riz. It's a pleasure to have you back with us on new thinking aloud today.
1: Thank you. It's so great to be back with you uh, today. I think this is my third uh, interview with uh, new thinking.
0: Yes, it is. Your latest book highlights the classic book, autobiography of a Yogi in the context of the modern era. How did you come to write this book?
1: Well, it was an interesting you know, set of coincidences that led me to write this book. Uh, as you may know, I have some previous books, including one called The Simulation Hypothesis, which was about the idea that the world is like a video game. And I had quoted Yogananda a few times in that. Uh, and then uh, that happened right around the time I was going through a bit of a health crisis and I spent a lot of time on the couch and I ended up rereading Autobiography of a Yogi, which I had first read in the 90s. And, you know, it's always a joy for me to go back and, and read that classic book because I really enjoy his stories of, you know, swamis and saints and old India and, you know, miracles and levitating saints. And so I ended up writing a few essays uh, about, you know, Yogananda, his book and other books that were like Autobiography of a Yogi, just because I was looking for more things to read when I was done. And And I didn't really intend to you know, write a book about Yogananda. I just did that for fun, as something to occupy my time. And then, you know, about a year later, uh, uh, on the 75th anniversary of uh, the release of Autobiography of Yogi, which was released in 1946, I got an email from Harper Collins in India, and they said, "Well, we want to do something for the 75th anniversary, and we don't want to just reprint the book. We, we'd like to, you know, get a modern take on it, and we'd like you to write it." And so, at first, I was like, "Really, you want me to write it you know i'm a, I'm a big fan of Yogananda, but I'm not part of his organization, uh, at least not formally, just you know as a student of his teachings uh, and i'm a businessman i'm not a swami i'm an entrepreneur, I write about technology, and they said, Yeah, but we want you to talk about modern ideas, like your idea that the world is in a video game, and we want you to relate those uh, and, and lessons you've learned you know in today's world." And we want you to relate those back to, you know, not just the autobiography, but to the ancient Indian wisdom that is what, you know, the autobiography was really about. And so, you know, I had one of those feelings that you get sometimes when there's an electric feeling that when you know, okay, this is actually something that I should do. Uh, and so I thought about it for, for, for a little bit. And then I said, yeah, this is absolutely something I should do. And so it was as if the universe placed the task in front of me. And that it was a task that I was supposed to complete, whether I felt ready for it or not. And to be honest, that is one of the lessons that's in the book is that sometimes the universe gives you an unexpected task. And you know, the same thing happened with Yogananda when he was relatively he was a relatively young Swami uh in teaching in a place called Ranchi in India, teaching these uh you know young boys in a boys' school. And he was given a vision of some some you know caucasian looking people and he he assumed they were americans because he you know he had never met an american up to that point in his life and he ended up going back to calcutta and he got an invitation to go speak in boston at the there was a big congress of world religions and now if you if you think back to it he wasn't the best person to go and represent you know the swami order he was a relatively young unknown swami He rarely ever gave a lecture. He had never given a lecture in English, right? He had completed two years of of college, but only because his guru made him. (laughs) He didn't want to, he just wanted to go and meditate. And so on the one hand, you might say maybe he wasn't ready for it. On the other hand, it was kind of a karmic task, right? It was a task that was given to him and put in front of him and he accepted it. He came to the West and he lived here for you know a long period of time, becoming what many have called the first modern guru. Uh, and, And so that was how the book came about. About. It, it really was through an invitation that was completely unexpected, but you know the more I thought about it, the more my writing has been about bridging different worlds, whether it's bridging the worlds of business and spirituality in my first book called Zen Entrepreneurship or the Worlds of Science and Technology with Mysticism, which was you know my simulation hypothesis book. and so you know in a sense, that's this book. Uh, Yogananda's book was a bridge. It was a bridge between the east and the West. And it was a bridge between Hinduism and Christianity at the time, he quotes the Bible a lot, uh, but it was also a bridge between ancient ideas in the modern world. And uh, And that's kind of what my book is as well. It's kind of a, a reinterpretation of some of those stories and what should we as modern thinkers think about these stories, you know? How should we relate to them? Are the lessons still relevant to us today?
0: Your book has now become a bestseller in India and Yogananda's book, Autobiography of a Yogi is a classic now Can you share a little bit about who this man was for those who may not be familiar with him?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, he was born uh, uh, in India in the the 1890s. uh, And uh, and when he was a, a young boy, he had this vision Of seeing him, of seeing these these yogis meditating in in the mountains, and he said, "Who are you?" And in this vision, they responded, "We are the yogis of the Himalayas." And suddenly, he had this strong intuition that he was going to be a yogi, and and he kept trying to run away from home when he was a young boy, (laughs) to try to run off to the Himalayas. There's some really colorful stories. Uh, in the autobiography and, and even up to the point when he was in high school, he and his friends like ran away from home, jumped on the trains to try to go to the himalayas, and his father or his older brother you know would chase him across northern India to bring him back because they thought he was too young to go off on his own and i I think you know he had a strong vision of being this yogi that was wandering, and he was right in the general. Uh, the general idea, even though the specifics were he ended up being a yogi wandering around America, not around the Himalayas. He actually spent very little time in the Himalayas. Uh, and so he came into Boston in 1920, uh, and basically decided to live in America for a few years. And so he began teaching, you know, these ancient Indian ideas. And he was one of the few, the first Swamis to really make, you know, the U.S. his home. Uh, and so he crisscrossed the country traveled to the West Coast, gave talks everywhere, which were attended by, in some cases, over a thousand people. I mean, there are pictures of these large stadiums where he would talk about how to apply ancient yogic philosophy uh, to life. And then, uh, you know, he eventually established his headquarters uh, for the Self-Realization Fellowship in Los Angeles. Uh, And, you know, about 15 years later, he went back to India for a little while. And then when he came back, and we can talk about this later, But that's when he focused, you know, more on writing uh, his autobiography. So until then, he had spent a lot of time, you know, uh, basically on trains. Back then, people didn't use planes so much. Automobiles is somewhat. Uh, He died in the 1950s. And then, you know, his book, uh, which was published just a few years before he died, really was kind of the sum total of many of his teachings Uh, and, you know, became a, a huge bestseller in the 1960s and so when the whole counterculture started right many young people in the u.s of that generation were looking for other spiritual ideas and they turned towards eastern ideas and turns out you know the autobiography of yogi was one of the most passed around books of that generation right i mean there was always a, a paperback edition about this size right and you know i in fact i just talked to somebody who was in san francisco during you know the, the late 60s in Haight ashbury and he said yeah someone just gave me a copy of this paperback <laughs> and i read it and and that was You know that was very true i mean if you look at the top 10 books that people read around that time this was one of those that was passed around kind of by the hippie generation if you will um and so that's when it really became a huge bestseller and then since then uh, you know it served as an introduction and an inspiration to people on the spiritual path right the book is not a set of techniques it's rather a set of stories that wrap up these ancient indian ideas of karma you know of samadhi of yoga and uh, you know many today we're pretty familiar with yoga right because there are so many yoga studios pretty much on every corner and we think of it as the asanas or the physical postures but you know yogananda didn't emphasize those in fact there's very little on the asanas in the autobiography but for many people this was their passport right this was what got them excited. George Harrison was a huge fan from the Beatles, and he used to have stacks of these books, and he'd give them out to basically anybody he thought needed regrooving, to use the, the terminology of the day. And Steve Jobs, you know, who also went to India during this time, you know, he he ended up uh, being a huge fan of this book. He read it every year, and according to his biographer, it was the only book on his iPad. This was a couple of years before he passed away. And then after he passed away at his memorial service, you know, everybody got this little brown box and they took it back and they opened it up and there was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi inside. And so you can see it had a huge impact on that generation. And then, you know, for myself as a kind of a Gen Xer, my mentors were of that generation, so they were the boomers, right? And they would pass on books like this to us to read, but but I'm finding that, you know, a lot of younger people have not necessarily read Autobiography of the Yogi, even though it's been out there and it's a huge bestseller. Uh, and so that was part of the reason, you know, why I wrote this book was to kind of bring these stories up to date. Uh, Yogananda is also a good example of what they call, scholars call the pizza effect, uh, which You know, is this idea like with pizza, it started in a small region in Italy, it came to the US, but what we think of pizza was really kind of a US invention by modifying what was originally pizza, like it was just a little bit of bread with a little bit of sauce on it, I think, (laughs) originally, and now, but now the American idea of pizza has gone back. And if you go to Italy, you can have you know American style pizza when you say pizza, because that's what everybody thinks it is. And so Yogananda's then teachings went back to India and he became really well known there over the years, you know, both because he was kind of an informal ambassador for Indian philosophy. But then over time, I mean, I would say he's he, he's almost better known there today than here in many ways. You know, my book first came out in India uh, in April. And as you mentioned, it's become a bestseller there. You can go to the airports in like New Delhi or Calcutta and it's on the bestseller shelves there, which is is exciting. But you know, he's an example of that pizza effect. That's how yoga has evolved in many philosophies and religions over time. You know, they go on to other cultures and then they get transformed a little bit by those other cultures still having the core ideas and then they travel back. And so Yogananda is kind of one of the, the primary examples of that in this space.
0: Right, because he lived most of his life here in the US and not only did he impact the West here in the United States, he also greatly impacted the East in India and beyond.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So he was a great, uh, I think, example of that. Now, to, to, that said, he lived most of his adult life here and and he published this book in English for an American audience. And, uh, you know, and if he had published it in India at the time, it might have been a different kind of book, right? There might have been a lot of things that may, perhaps they took for granted. But now India is modernizing, right? You know, there's a quote in my book from Rudyard Kipling, you know, who said, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And I say, well, that's relevant today for not being relevant at all, right? Because the world is so interconnected, right? I mean, India, China, uh, you know, all parts of Asia have modernized so fast that you know during Yogananda's time, you used to think of India as a spiritual place and the West as this materialistic place, right? But today, you'll find as much materialism, you know, in the in in the East, uh, you know, on the streets of Mumbai or or Shanghai or you know Lahore, where. Uh, uh, near where I'm from, uh, that, you know, that, and the cultures because of the internet and the way we share videos and the way we share <laughs> the information is very similar and the rate of modernization. So in the same way that Yogananda's message was needed here, while America was modernizing in the 20th century, right, it's, just, it's been just as needed in India and other countries as they've been modernizing in the late 20th and early 21st century as well. And, and so, you know, Yogananda himself was a bridge between these worlds and the book because it was written here, in some ways, is actually more relevant to India today than it would have been if he had written it in India back then, right? Because he's looking at it from a modern perspective. He's modern during his time, right? He's bringing in the the, the modern analogies and the science and technology of his day, right? And and if he were alive today, uh, I think he would do the same today. In your book, you pull out
0: stories from Autobiography of a Yogi, and you present them as lessons. And how did you come to selecting those various stories to share in your own book?
1: Well, that's, you know, an interesting question because I don't know that it, there was, a, that was so much a logical process as much as an intuitive one, you know? And so, you know, I also thought about how these lessons might have impacted myself and my own life uh and uh, i i sometimes i found different stories that were saying similar things right or they were wrapping up a concept that was an important lesson you know for me to learn i also interviewed you know a number of people uh who were big fans of the autobiography uh, and for whom the autobiography had an impact on their life and i asked them what stories do you remember right and there were many stories that were in common and you know because it's a five hundred page book there are just way too many too many stories to cover and so I wanted to capture the highlights of different ones. Like so for example I I just mentioned these stories about Yogananda running away to the Himalayas. Well those stories were you know throughout his childhood. So it wasn't just one story. Uh but you know the lesson there that I came up with was that sometimes you don't have to go to the Himalayas, right, to find your spiritual path because it turns out in the end, Yogananda's guru, uh, the one he eventually, you know, uh, uh, became associated with, was Sri Yukteswar, who was in Serampore, which was just twelve miles outside of Calcutta, and Calcutta's a huge city, right. So he was very close, right. In the end, he thought he was going to go to the Himalayas, but he ended up finding, you know, his spiritual mentor right close to home. And it turns out, uh, Sri Yukteswar was kind of a brother swami to Yogananda's father and his mother, who were both. Uh, you know, disciples of Lahiri Mahashai, who we can talk about in a minute, from Banaras, but it, it was a much closer, right, association than I think perhaps he expected at the time. And, you know, I mentioned Steve Jobs earlier, uh, you know, he went to India when he was a young man, and he, in his hostel, or his dorm room there, somebody had left a copy of Anabha Yogi, and he brought that back, and that ended up being the book he read a lot. And you know, in his case, he didn't necessarily practice the exact meditations that Yogananda taught. And that's true. I think of most people who read this book, they get inspired to find their own particular path uh, by bringing in these different ideas. And, you know, while I was writing this book, I interviewed a Hollywood producer, his name is Peter. And, you know, he earlier we would go to Rishikesh, you know, which is in India, which is where kind of the Beatles went with uh the Maharishi back in the day in the sixties when they, you know, there was a really big news story and uh but he went there to try to find, you know, this Indian spirituality. And while he was in a bookstore there, he saw Yogananda's book in this picture of him, and he recognized the picture because it had been in the Los Angeles paper <laughs> in Hollywood. And then when he you know, he read the book on the way back and then he found uh, you know, one of Yogananda's organizations, SRF temples, like right, like within a mile of Hollywood, right? Uh, and so, you know, there's yet, yet another example of where you don't always have to go somewhere else. And, and so, you know, even in my own life, the, 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 the person who recommend the teacher that recommended that I read this was back in the 90s. I, you know, was off in Europe at the time. I was dissatisfied with my job. I quit my job and came back to, to Boston, to Cambridge, right near MIT to work for a startup. And, you know, I was looking around for some spiritual path and was thinking I may have to go to California, right? In the US, California kind of served that role back then, at least back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, as perhaps, you know, going to India did for for the counterculture uh of a place. And it turns out right next to the startup that I went to work for, there were some guys teaching meditation that was part of this other uh lineage. And then I ended up, you know, spending some time with those guys. And then, you know, that's how I came. It was actually a Caucasian you know guy a white guy with curly blonde hair who 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 you know told me to read the book, and so it was yet another example of you know I was born in that part of the world, but I came here, and you know I found you know kind of the start of my path there and so that's an example of a set of lessons that were both based on stories but also based on Yogananda's life and then based upon other people that I have interviewed as well uh and and so I think that's a, that's an interesting lesson for that reason.
0: Since you just mentioned California, the headquarters of the Self-Realization Fellowship are in Los Angeles, and he actually wrote the autobiography of a yogi in Encinitas. You actually took a pilgrimage there and had a vision of Yogananda. Can you share that experience with
1: us? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I had agreed to write this book and I had started writing the book and it was going along kind of slowly and I was uh, looking to do something that would give me the inspiration to kind of complete this book. And one of the lessons in the book is uh, based on, you know, what Yogananda did in his life, which is go on little and big pilgrimages, go out of your way for little and big pilgrimages. And he would do this all the time. Like he would go out of his way, whether it was when he was a kid, he would take multiple buses to some temple on the outskirts of of, of the big metro area of Calcutta. And then later as an adult, while he was traveling, he would take out to find some natural spot of beauty or some place where a saint uh, lived before and and he would use it as inspiration. And so I thought, well, it would be great if I could go visit the place where Yogananda wrote Autobiography of the Yogi. and, And he spent, you know, pretty much the last decade of his life uh, in the Encinitas Hermitage, which is just north of San Diego, right on the Pacific Ocean there. And so I thought, and I had been to that area before, there's even a little beach there where he used to walk and they call it, I mean, the real, the formal name now is Swami's Beach, because he used to just walk up and down this beach all the time. Uh, And so I was hoping to go there, but the problem was this was in the middle of COVID, right? And they had closed it off to the public. Uh, And so I thought, well, I I want to go all the way there and not be able to go inside. And so I contacted the folks at SRF and they were able to arrange a private tour for me. Uh, you know, during the COVID time. And so I, I went and met some of the monks that lived there because it's an actual hermitage, uh, where, where the monastic, you know, the monastic order, uh, the folks live there. And, uh, th- not only was I able to spend time in you know, admiring the beautiful scenery in the building, but I got to spend a lot of time in his private office, in his study where he wrote this. Uh, and that was where, you know, you could hear the waves of the Pacific Ocean, because it's right overlooking the cliffs. And there's like a door to a little patio that goes out there. And I just naturally got into a meditative state, you know? And this is what would happen with Yogananda a lot when you went to particular places. And while I was there, I had a very strong vision of him. You know, not only did I feel as I was walking into the study, with his bedroom and his study were like right across the hall from each other. I felt this weird energy, like when I went through, and they told me that's not that unusual. People do feel like an interesting energy between those rooms because that's where he spent most of his time. But then, when I was in the study and 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 I just got into this meditative state naturally, I had a very clear vision of him, like much clearer than I've than I've ever had. And in it, he was standing near his desk, and he had a stack of papers. Uh, which of course is you know how books were written back then right they, they didn't have computers so that was the manuscript and in my vision he was kind of looking at me like see 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 here's the, the, the papers and 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 as I was watching him uh, he opened up the french doors you know that kind of led out to the ocean and much to my horror he took uh, the papers and he flung them out you know to the pacific ocean and they scattered everywhere and i say much to my horror because there are a lot of horror stories in the past when that was a manuscript where it got lost and the book was lost at that point so I'm like well, what are you doing and he had kind of a mischievous glint in his eyes and and he said watch and then what happened was each of the papers turned into these little white birds in my vision and they went off you know to all these places around the world and he was like see you know as a writer this is what's important you know your words will carry on long after you're there and so that was one of the messages that i got you know, and then another message that I got there was to be a little more playful, you know, with the process. Um, And after that, uh, you know, not only did I get this vision, but it was as if the energy kind of opened up and i just said i was going to have fun with writing this book and write these stories about you know saints with two bodies and appearing in multiple places like all the all the stuff that i read about when i first read the book and was amazed you know like genies appearing and making objects disappear and appear in other places and stuff and then try to take a more modern take you know on uh perspective on these stories and say what should we think about them but yeah that was that was the vision that i had there and it was pretty powerful for me
0: that is a beautiful story and deeply touching. The autobiography of a yogi book is replete with those types of stories where Yogananda describes meeting with swamis and saints and has these experiences that for many decades people are still questioning are they real or
1: not? Yeah, and I think that, you know, that that happens and and I think what I try to do is to put the stories in context to say that Yogananda was telling the stories as he heard them. And in other cases, he, he actually witnessed the events. And other times there's a lesson embedded within those stories. I mean, let's take, for example, the story of the tiger swami, right? Which is one of the stories when I interviewed people, they always remembered the story of the tiger swami. And the tiger swami was a guy who, you know, was kind of a feeble young man, but he built up his body and he had this desire to fight tigers, right? With his bare hands. And he became known as a tiger fighter. Uh, And, you know, he would actually, you know, literally knock these beasts out. Uh, And uh, and he became kind of famous for it. And at one point, you know, he was told by a swami through his father that, okay, you've done this now. It's time for you to start, you know, turning your attention away from fighting these tigers uh, because of karma turn your attention away to doing other things like meditating and more spiritual pursuits. And of course he didn't listen, right? As a young man, he went to this one uh, uh, province in India and uh, the Raja or Prince of that province Said, well, you know, I've got this Bengal fierce Bengal tiger named Raja Begum, and you know, if you fight him and defeat him, I'll give you all this wealth and all this fame. And of course, he said yes, you know. And then it turns out this was the the most difficult fight he ever had. And I mean, he did in the end defeat the tiger, but he ended up the tiger ended up mauling him so much that he ended up you know, losing a lot of blood and he got ill and basically he had to spend six months just laying down and doing nothing. And then he found after that experience, when he finally healed, he had no more desire to fight tigers. And then he sought out the Swami and he became a Swami himself. And that's why he's known today as the Tiger Swami. And so Yogananda met, you know, this Swami when he was a kid. And, you know, he asked him, do you think that I could fight tigers? And, and he said, yes, but there are other types of tigers, right? There are your inner tigers of doubt and ignorance. And that is what you should focus on. And that was kind of the, the lesson that Yogananda was trying to convey. But at the same time, I, I think there's an interesting karmic lesson here as well. And it's that, you know, the tiger Swami, Sohang Swami was his ordained name. That he was drawn to this weird thing of fighting tigers and that we are, we are drawn in the world to certain outward battles and certain outward tasks, right? And that is part of our karma. It's almost like he needed to do that to fulfill some karma, but then he stayed fighting his outer tigers too long. Perhaps he should have then shifted at that point. And I tell my own story, you know, in the book where you know, for me as an entrepreneur, I've been fighting these battles in the business world, much less dangerous from a physical point of view, right? But I spent a lot of time in the business world. But I also had this vision, even when I was a kid, uh, you know, saying that I was going to be an entrepreneur, and that I was going to be a writer. But every time I, I'd, I'd, you know, finish selling a company or something, it's okay, now it's time for me to go off and be more spiritual and do my writing, I'd get sucked into another startup in Silicon Valley. And I, you know, and what happened to me was at the height of my business career, I was at MIT actually mentoring a lot of startups. Uh, and I ended up having, you know, a serious setback and having serious heart surgery. And if you've ever seen heart surgery, it's kind of like getting mauled. I mean, you basically open up your chest and I spent the next six to nine months pretty much on the couch. There was not much that I could do. And for me, you know i i during that time i had my own visions where i you know no longer had the desire to do too much in the business world because whenever i tried to jump back in the business world i feel a little better and i j- tried to jump back in and my health would get worse and i'd end up back in the hospital and through a series of visions i got this message that you know i've been fighting these outer battles it's time for me to focus on my writing and i did and because i could i had enough energy to get in an Uber and go to Starbucks and do some writing, and that was about as much energy as I had for that day. But it it worked out because I ended up publishing two books in nine months, including my best selling book, The Simulation Hypothesis. Whereas in the previous ten years, I had barely finished, you know, uh, published two books at that point. And so, you know, for me, it was the same kind of a message that I've been, I, it was okay to fight your outer tigers, that is what your karmic script may have called for. But then there are other elements to the script. And so you don't want to spend too much time fighting your outer tigers. Now that story was, you know, there's a there's a clear lesson there around karma. And there's a few other stories like that, that you can kind of look more closely behind the miracles uh, and say, well, this is really a story about karma. And I can go into that now, la- now or later.
0: Definitely. I think karma is a really valuable aspect of your book. And of course, Yogananda's. And I'm also curious how your health is doing. In addition to how understanding the autobiography more deeply has impacted your own personal
1: journey. Uh, well, sure. So on, on, on each of those, uh, so first of all, my health has been much improved, you know, uh, that, that took place about five years ago now. So it, it, it's been quite a few years. And, uh, you know, I was able to kind of get back on my feet and, and now I'm, uh, at Arizona State University, uh, teaching, uh, and working on getting a PhD. And, you know, in, 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 in the book, I talk a little bit, uh, about my parents' journey you know, from Pakistan. I was born near Lahore, a city where Yogananda lived uh, when he was a, a baby. And there was a story about a magic amulet, you know, that we can talk about there as well. But, uh, you know, uh, and then Yogananda had to catch the first boat out of India after World War I, because there they weren't, you know, there weren't any boats uh, to take him to the West. And, you know, my dad came to immigrate to the West. And he had to take the first flight out after a war in 1971 and he got delayed because of the war. There were no flights out of Lahore because it's right on the border with India and that's where the, the war was going on at the time. And, you know, he had first gone to Paris to get a PhD and then, you know, he had, uh, and then he uh, settled in America like Yogananda did. And so I saw a lot of parallels, you know, with Yogananda as an immigrant and, uh, you know, as an immigrant. You know, it's the children who end up being more like a mix of the cultures, right? They end up being, you know, a combination. And and that's true, I think, in America as a melting pot more than anywhere else. And that's true of Yogananda. And of course, Yogananda had no children, but he had his literary children, right? And that's why, you know, this book, Autobiography of a Yogi, I think was so important Uh, in the introduction, which was written by, uh, I think, an Oxford professor who studied Eastern traditions, who said, you know, it was one of the first books by A yogi about yoga right it was an authentic book for that reason it was authentically eastern but it was also authentically western because he spent most of his life here and he you know he became an american citizen towards the end of his life uh and 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 so in a sense it was a it was a blend and so you know i kind of view people like myself who were the children of immigrants as a blend of these two cultures and and you know during writing this book my father passed away uh you know right around the time that i had finished the book and i was reflecting on his journey yeah yeah thank you so much and you know i ended up writing a little retrospective about his life and the things he did along the way and it kind of amazed me to look back at you know all the things that he and my mother you know did uh when they were younger to get us here and, and 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 all the struggles and yogananda also went through many struggles while he was here if you read autobiography of a yogi you think Oh, he had such a magical life. He just prayed to divine mother and everything just kind of came to him. And that, you know, wasn't necessarily the case. In fact, he had some huge setbacks. One of the biggest setbacks happened, you know, around the time that he came, you know, in 1935, he'd gone to India, which was a triumphant trip and he came back and his number two guy, who was his brother Swami, from India, a kid who had meditated in his attic because he didn't have enough room and his own house to meditate. So he had meditated with Yogananda. Uh, He became Swami Durananda and he was kind of running things while Yogananda was running around teaching all the time in other places. And he ended up leaving his organization. There was a whole scandal, first of all, because in the papers where some husband of a woman that was studying with Durananda was upset that they were using incense and chanting in these dark rooms. And he came and he hit him, bopped him on the nose. And it became this huge story. Like today, we would say it's a story that went viral, right? In in all the newspapers in America were covering, you know, strange Hindu love cult, right? Even though there was no, none of that actually going on. Uh, And of course, Yogananda was the better known Swami, so they all, everybody assumed it was him who the guy had come in and punched. And so anyway, this created a huge scandal, and then Dhirananda eventually left the organization and took a bunch of folks with him and it made Yogananda, you know, kind of reevaluate what he was doing here. And he went to Mexico and meditated and gave some lectures and he was praying, you know, Lord, let me just go back to India and meditate. This is too hard trying to, you know, bring these ideas and build an organization and do all the things. But the answer was no, this is your task. You know, this is what you need to do. And so he began looking for a different way after that rather than always running around himself all the time and that's why he spent a good decade writing the autobiography in Encinitas and that became a way to reach not just thousands but really millions of people around the world um and so you know th- there were just a lot of parallels that, that that I saw there uh during during the writing of this book and so uh you know I I was able to reflect on that and and also see how it applied to kind of my own life also
0: in what ways has the autobiography impacted you in your life or assisted you on your spiritual journey?
1: Well, I, I, you know, that's a good question. And I would say it's been different at different points in my journey, right? So one of the points that I make in Wisdom of a Yogi is that the autobiography, its primary purpose was to inspire and to open up people's minds that these other things may be possible, right? And it was also a way to introduce these ancient, you know, Indian philosophies of yoga. And, uh, you know, so when I first read it, I was mostly just reading it because there were these cool stories of these, these swamis. So uh, I'll, I'll give you one of the stories that stuck in my mind that I never, you know, I didn't even need to read it again, because I remembered it so vividly. Uh It was, so Lahiri Mahashai, who was Yogananda's guru's guru, he met uh this seemingly immortal Swami who lived in the Himalayas, who is now called Maha Maha Avatar Avatar Babaji. Uh, And even in India now he's called that because that was kind of Yogananda's terminology that he used in his book, and the book has become so popular there. And of course, you know, Babaji said, Lahiri, you have come, don't you remember? you know, uh, you meditated here in this cave with me in past lives. And of course, Lahiri didn't remember. He was some 30 years old. He was a government employee. He had kids. He'd gotten married. And then eventually, you know, he tapped him. Uh, he tapped him on the third eye and he gave him some stuff. And then he eventually remembered all his past lives. And so he then initiated him into yoga up in the Himalayas, so here in the foothills, you know, near a place called Raniket. Uh, and during that time, Supposedly, supposedly, right, in the story, Babaji materialized an entire palace, like a golden palace, right? And so this is a story that sounds like it's out of the Arabian Nights, right? In fact, some people accuse Yogananda of, you know, making up stories that sounds like they were, you know, in in the original Aladdin story, the genie makes for Aladdin, you know, this giant palace with resplendent with jewels. And what Babaji tells him is, you know, that Lahiri, you expressed a desire in a previous life to live, in a palace, like a princely palace. And so I'm creating this palace for you. And and Lahiri was amazed because he literally, to him, it looked like it was a literal palace to show you one, that this is a dream world and you know uh, that a man of realization can create things that look and seem real. But two, to resolve that karma, right? You don't have to worry about now having to have another life where you live in a palace. And it shows the inner workings of karma here, right? That karma comes not just from actions, but it comes from intentions and thoughts and feelings that he had that strong desire and it was fulfilled out there. So that's like one of the stories that was so vivid the first time I read the autobiography. But I think for somebody like me, who's also, you know, within the world of science and technology, uh, you know, I had just graduated from MIT. A lot of my friends were very materialists. Uh, materialistic point, they had a materialistic point of view, a very scientific point of view. And at first glance, you say, no, that's not really possible, is it, right? <laughs> uh, and so I think originally, it was just an inspiration. But then over time, as I've gone back, and every few years, you know, I would reread it, either the physical book or the audio book. And there's a great audio book of the autobiography read by Ben Kingsley, wow. uh, which, which, yeah, is really well done. Um, and in fact, I'm working, I'm having the audio book, you know, narrated for, for my book right now. It should be out probably by the time that this, uh, this interview goes live. Uh, and so, you know, I, I had to, direct the narrator to the kingsley book just because you have to listen to how he read
0: <laughs> yeah can you sound can you sound like kingsley
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah can you sound like kingsley is what i told him right or at least for the pronunciations right <laughs> uh, for you know because there's so many uh, indian words and yet it's a book written in america so it's an interesting mix of the two uh, but then over time you know yogananda has meant a lot to me because i've gone back as I I developed this philosophy to tie together the worlds of science and technology. And one of the things that I found really compelling, uh, and not the first time I read the book, but later was that Yogananda would bring up to date, you know, these ancient, uh, uh, metaphors that were used. And one of the biggest ones was the dream metaphor, right? And, and, and the Buddhists use the dream metaphor quite a bit. The world is like a dream, right? Uh, and I mentioned the story where Babaji was talking about the world is like a dream and we're creating this dream palace for you, but it looks real because all of this isn't real. And, you know, Yogananda was watching these newsreels of World War One, And so this is an example of a story that didn't make an impact on me when I first read it. But then later, like in the last 10 years or so, it made a huge impact on me. And, you know, he, he saw these newsreels in World War One. They didn't call it World War One; They called it the Great War. Because... That was the war where you know more people died than any other war before because they were using mechanized, you know, machine guns and artillery in ways that they hadn't before. And so he saw these newsreels and and he said, "Lord, how can you allow such suffering?" And when he was meditating, he had a vision of being out on the actual battlefield, and he saw, you know, in three D, you know, kind of panoramic holographic review what it was like, and again, you know, tears were coming to his eyes and then he got a clear answer saying, look closely, you know, what are life and death, but relativities in the cosmic dream. To think of the newsreel you just saw, that is a motion picture. What's happening now in the battlefields of France is also like a motion picture. The world is like a motion picture, that it's a play of light and shadow on a screen. And of course, the suffering is real you know, within the the movie, but if a character dies, the actor doesn't die, right? That that is a part, in fact, the juiciest parts, right? Look at people who get Oscars for an actor are the ones that involve a certain amount of suffering. And so he 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 would use this analogy that the world is like a movie projector, right? It's, he used like an Italian word for a certain type of art called charoscuro, which is the play of light and shadow and and so he would use this analogy to say look away from the screen right that's uh, we're so caught up in the warp and woof of maya right which is a term for illusion but the real definition of maya is more than just an illusion it's like a carefully crafted illusion with which we fool ourselves right in a sense it's like if we go the the, the analogy that i've heard used is if you go to a magic show you know the guy is not really sawing that woman in half, right? But you are amazed anyway because you want to look it to look like he did, because that's what causes the amazement, right? And that this world is like that. That is a kind of a play. Now, if I believe if Yogananda were alive today, he would say, and he's used this uh, this metaphor of the dreams of life and death. He would say are like doors from one dream into another, right? But he, but if he were alive today, he would say it's like a movie but we were all in the movie as players or actors, but we're also watching the movie. We have a script, but we can change the script. We have free will. We can make choices uh, and we're doing it together. I think he would say that the world is like an interactive, massively multiplayer role-playing game. It's like a video game, right? And of course, I spent the last decade in the video game industry. And so for me, it would be his metaphor of the film projector, which was The latest technology, right? I mean, he came to America in 1920, over 100 years ago now. Uh, That was the latest technology. They even called them bioscopes back then. You know, they had all these different terminologies for films. But if you've ever been in a movie theater, and if you've ever kind of looked around in the middle of the movie, you know, you see like people are so engrossed in the movie because that's what you're there for. You're there to lose yourself in the screen. But you can also see the flicker of light, which you can't see if you just watch the screen. You think it's continuous motion. You can see the frames flickering. And so yoga... You know to me as i started to get deeper into it by rereading yogananda reading patanjali who wrote the yoga sutras uh and this is a realization i came to only you know in the last uh, few years when when i was formulating this idea that the world is like a simulation or a video game uh, is that yoga is about looking away from the screen that it's about uh it's about uh uh calming the vrittis but right? if you look at the the ancient sanskrit Definition of yoga in the Yoga Sutras from Patanjali. And Yogananda talks about this in his book. It kind of gets lost a little bit because of all these fantastical stories. But it says Yoga Naroda, Yoga Chitta Vrittis Naroda. Uh, Yoga is the cessation of the Vrittis. What are the Vrittis? Vrittis are like whirlpools. And so they get translated as thoughts or waves of consciousness. And so I kind of reinterpreted the different translations for this book. It says yoga is the cessation of the whirlpools of thought and feeling in the river of consciousness, right? Because if you have a whirlpool, it's got to be in something, but it's not just thoughts. I think a lot of the translations of the Indian concepts, they, they, you know, especially like when you talk about the Buddhist translations, they, they get caught up in this mental idea, but it's not just the mental. It's the desires. It's our attachment to things, right? That that is an important part of what yoga is. And so for me, it kind of redefined my, spiritual perspective and on the path. And so, you know, that's another way. And then when I've gone through, you know, tough times, we all go through tough times and that's, you know, one of the one of the lessons in the book is sometimes we have setbacks in our lives and those setbacks are part of our karmic script. Like in my case, this is the first time I've written about this kind of major health crisis that I had, but it was like one of those what they call the switchblades in the railways, right? When you have the two tracks, it's like uh you're going on this track But perhaps, you know, you had agreed to go on this track. And so we need a way to shift you over to this track. And so in the end, I viewed it as, you know, a blessing and a curse or curse because you had to go through, I had to go through the physical suffering that was involved with that, but a blessing because it helped, you know, kind of the setback was actually part of the story, just like Yogananda's setback. He may not have written this book in the same way or spent the same amount of time you know, a whole decade writing this book and making this book his primary method of teaching out there if he hadn't had his other setbacks, Mm -hmm. right? At the
0: same time, those desires and feelings are all part of our karma for our own soul's development.
1: Yeah, and I agree with that. And that's why, you know, I told the the story of the Tiger Swami, right? Because we have these karmic desires and we have these karmic scripts. And that is part of the reason that we're here right? I mean, if we're here in the game, uh, part of the reason is to play the game, right? It's to enjoy, or in this case, you know, Yogananda says, ceaseless joy is not the nature of this physical world, right? And we know that. Uh, He says, so ceaseless joy is what you can get to by quieting, you know, these, uh, the storms of the vrittis. It's kind of like the the snow globe, right? uh, That we have. If you have a snow globe and you shake it, you can't really see anything clearly, but when you calm it, you can see more clearly. But you can also see more clearly, perhaps the intuition and the clues that are there to guide you uh, in in what you were meant to do in this life. And you know, I, I, one of the things that I that I talk about is the, the, the with near death experiencers. You know, they record having the life review. Uh, and in the life review, they, it's like a holographic panoramic review of everything they had done in their lives, right? And so it's kind of like a gameplay session. If you go to YouTube today, it turns out among the most, if not the most popular content on YouTube is recordings of video game sessions, right? So you're not playing the video game. You're watching people who already played the game and you're replaying it to see what would happen. And to me, the life review sounded like this kind of a thing where you could basically replay everything is being recorded in the whole three dimensional world, which we think of as being so real. And so what is the purpose of the game? You know, the, the purpose of the game it, can be revealed by what we do afterwards. We look back at it and say, okay, this is what you were supposed to do. Which of those things did you do? Which of those things didn't you do? We cross the veil, you know, the, the, the river of forgetfulness or the veil of Maya so that we're, when we're here, we forget these things. And that's why we need our intuition to remind us of some of those, those karmic, uh, you know, scripts that we might have agreed to. At the same time, I feel like we have the opportunity to make those choices, right? Because uh, you know, I've always felt I always had this inclination to be a teacher and get a PhD, but at the same time, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. At the same time, I wanted to be a writer, right? And so, while some of my my friends in our in their twenties after we graduated went on to the academic world and got their PhDs, then it was sort of a, something I put on the back burner and assumed I would just never do because I was too busy with these other elements of karma. And I, I view these these karmic tasks or desires as like quests in a video game. Right? And so the way video games are built today is you have a set of quests and you can say, okay, I choose this quest now. And you go and you fight this battle. Maybe you raid a, a castle to get the gold <laughs> from the orcs or something, right? Uh, and then that opens up more quests along the way. And so I view it as a, we we all have a set of this database of these quests out there and we can choose which of those to take on but there are some that we said okay we definitely want to do this right and we may do it later right we may do it like i I'm, I'm getting a phd at a relatively late stage in my career after having had a successful career doing other things it's, that's pretty unusual in the academic world uh although it's becoming more common now than it was in the past and so i'm i'm kind of taking that quest which was put back on the shelf and and bringing it back and so lahiri who was yogananda's guru's guru and who kind of brought you know, his particular lineage from Babaji in the Himalayas, he was a householder, uh, is the term that they use. I mean, I would use modern yogi, right? He, he had a job with the government. He kept his job even after he was pretty much realized and enlightened and could do these miraculous things, right? Uh, people have saw him do quite a few things, uh, materialize his body hundreds of miles away, right? But he kept his ordinary job until he retired on a, on a pension for the government and then basically sat in samadhi almost 24 by 7 after that right and so he always said you need to add yoga to the things you're supposed to do in this world right as opposed to something else he also said you need to add it to whatever religious you religion you are part of if you're a muslim you still do the namaz prayer if you're a hindu uh, you know you may do certain rites if you're a christian you know you still do your prayers and then yoga is a practice that you can add on top of that and and so that was an important you know part of, part of that as well for me
0: I like how you describe how there's a similarity between karma and playing a video game with quests and also achievements
1: yeah and and I'd love to give you another example from Yogananda that was a, one of these miraculous stories that your first reaction is, did that really happen or not and so Yogananda was in Serampore which is where his guru uh was and and his guru made him go to college right and finish even though he didn't want to, he just wanted to meditate uh and so he had a dorm room you know near uh, uh near the college and and his guru Sri Yukteswar was there and he said you know in this very room in this very building I witnessed four miracles from uh, a Muslim fakir, which is kind of their term for like a sadhu or a, a seeker or a holy man, and what happened was this this fakir Afzal Khan, uh, when he was younger, uh, he came across this this Hindu uh, yogi who he had given some water to because uh, the guy was thirsty, and I guess it was a time of sectarianism between Hindus and Muslims, and so the guy you know the guy said you know it's great that you did not succumb to this ungodly sectarianism, right? And and so he decided to reward the boy because of his good karma, and he taught him a series of t- techniques. And these techniques gave him control over an invisible entity, which he called Hazrat. Now I've interpreted that to be a jinn, because you know he's a Muslim fakir. In the Islamic traditions, there are these. Uh, these uh, kind of beings called jinns in the Bible, and in uh, in the Quran, you can talk about Solomon and how he had you know, control over the jinn. And so this guy, Afzal Khan began, and, and he said, be careful though, because from previous lives, you have a tendency to be uh, avaricious, right? to be greedy. Right? And so what did this guy do with his newfound powers? He would tell Hazrat, who could go and just make any object disappear. And he would go to a jewelry store and touch these objects, And then he would leave and say, Hazrat, go get those objects. And the objects would disappear. And later they would appear in his possession. And he would go to the train station with a bunch of disciples and he would touch all these tickets and say, I'm not going to buy them. And then later he'd say, Hazrat, go get them. And Hazrat would get him the tickets. And so these objects would disappear and reappear. And so Yogananda's guru, Sri Yukteswar, said he saw this where, where they threw... Put a watch in the water, a stone in the water, and then it reappeared. And then he made all of these objects, these uh, dinner plates, fall from the sky in the room, which were like these golden plates with a huge meal, feast for all the people that were gathered, just out of nowhere. And then immediately Hazrat made them go away. And so what happened was later in that guy's life, Afzal Khan, because he had become greedy, he came across an old man with a limp who had a gold ball. And the old man said, help me and instead of helping him he touched the ball and told hazrat to take it and eventually hazrat made it disappear and then he was in for a surprise because the old man was the same guy who taught him the yogic technique uh and he said so this is what you've been doing with your powers right this is what i you know i warned you about so he took away the ability for the guy to control uh, this this genie hazrat except for in a few instances like if he was hungry or something like that but but this was an interesting story and he had to write an apology in a, in a newspaper. And I guess this guy was known as the terror of Bengal, like all the jewelry stores and the railroad executives knew to like, watch out when this guy came by. And so he wrote this big, long apology telling the story. Now, you know, at first glance, modern seekers would be like, come on, that seems like something out of the Arabian nights. Did this really happen? But then as I searched around, you know, there are other references to stories like this, particularly within the Islamic traditions. But more than that, it's a story about karma. So let's suppose you were playing a video game and your part of your karmic task is to work on how greedy you are. Now, can you think of a better quest and a better way to test yourself than to give you an entity that can basically get you any physical object you want, right, to test whether you're going to be greedy or not? So in a sense, this story, I mean, it almost doesn't matter if it happened. That way, Yogananda clearly believed it did because this is a story about karma and how the universe might be able to create situations for us that are perfectly attuned, you know, to our particular karmic challenges. Uh, you know, I say karmic tasks, but quests are challenges. And sometimes you try to play a quest in a video game and you don't succeed. And then you got to go do it again later, right? And then you go do it again. So there's that whole element to this as well.
0: The stories in autobiography are just astounding. And they're full of Saints and yogis guiding Yogananda in precognitive ways about his own karma and full of cities, which seem to occur on this path, but we're not supposed to get caught up in them.
1: Yeah. So many of the stories are about the cities or the superpowers, as we would call them today. And, you know, Yogananda was super curious about these, right? Whenever there was a, a saint who reportedly had you know, a particular ability, he would like go out of his way to try to find this, this person. And there was one called the levitating saint, Baduri Mahasaya. And, you know, he lived not far from Yogananda initially. And uh, his, his Yogananda's friend said, Hey, I discovered this, this levitating saint, I saw him actually right off, rise off the ground. And Yogananda said, Oh, yeah, I've been to see him many times. And, you know, what Yogananda tells us is that these, uh, these cities, aren't the goal, right? And sometimes you can get caught up in in the goal. Like there's the perfume thing this was uh ganda baba i think was his name and he was able to make any scent of a perfume appear on your hand and yogananda went and asked him for jasmine and then he went home and his sister said oh yeah what do you have jasmine perfume on what's going on as soon as he got home but but he talks about how well yogananda wasn't impressed that this guy was you know understanding the physical the laws of the physical world and how to bend them and what was he doing he was just making a little scent and and so he was warning us that we can get uh, you know, these things can be an obstacle to our path. And, and the levitating saints, you know, he, there's a whole chapter about him, and he has a ton of lessons for Yogananda. And, you know, very, they're not about how to levitate, right? <laughs> there, and, and that was a, someone he called, you know, a man of real realization. Like one of the weird things, you know, that he did was, uh, he stayed indoors for like almost 20 years. And when Yogananda asked him why, he said, well, because they assumed it was for his protection. So, you know, the outside world, doesn't crop in, and he said, "No, it's for the protection of everybody else, right? Because when somebody is is, is a saint, right, uh, they know that this is all an illusion, and that you know people he'll they'll say things to people that they don't want to hear <laughs> because they're also caught up in the illusion, and so it's for the as much for the protection of everybody else." You know, and then that guy was actually born to a very wealthy family, but he gave it all up to become a yogi, which, you know, is, there are interesting stories like this throughout the tradition, like Prince Siddhartha, for example, who became the Buddha, or he tells the story of Mirabai, who was a Rajputani princess who gave it all up, right, to become this kind of famous yogi. And so, you know, Baduri's disciples, who Yogananda wasn't formally a disciple, but, you know, he was curious, so he would always try to go in. And he would talk about has his sense of humor, and he talked about how saints have this sense of humor, right? And and that it would make Yogananda roar with laughter, but his other disciples would get mad that Yogananda was laughing so much. Uh, they'd look daggers at him, but but the saint loved it because he knows you know how absurd the whole thing is. <laughs> Somebody who has that realization. So, anyways, his disciples would say, "Oh, you know, sir, you're so wonderful. You gave up all these riches to to you know to be this yogi." And go for spiritual attainment. He goes, no, it's not me who's giving up anything. You know, I've got, I'm finding ever, everlasting bliss and joy. Uh, it's the, those people who spend their, their, their entire lives toiling for a few rupees who are giving up, you know, the really important thing, you know, which is this bliss that he's seeking. And so, so all of these stories of cities usually have a purpose, but Yogananda also tells us that you know, they are signs of achievement along the way. So for example, you know, uh, there was the Swami, the saint with two bodies, which is one of the early stories. Uh, When Mukunda was like 12 years old, Mukunda was Yogananda's uh, given name before he became Swami. Yogananda, Uh, his father was a railroad executive, and he sent him to the city of Bukunda want, wanted to go to Benares to go sightseeing and his father said, okay, I have a message to send to this guy, Kedarnath Babu, he's in Benares, but I don't know where he is. So take this message to the Swami in Benares. He gave him a first class ticket on the railway to go to Benares and the Swami will figure out where this guy Kedarnath Babu is and he can give him my message. So Mukunda goes there, and you know, there's the Swami Pranamananda and he's just sitting there in a loincloth meditating. And he goes, "Are you Bhagavati's son?" Which is Yogananda's father's name. He goes, "Yeah." How did you know? He goes, "Oh yeah, I got the message." Okay, sit down. I'll find Ketanath Babu for you. And so about a half hour passes, and Yogananda's like wondering what, what the heck's going on. The guy's not like he's just sitting there meditating, right? Uh, we need. I need to go find this guy. And he and he opens his eyes and says, "Don't worry, you know this guy Babu is on his way. He'll be here." Surely. And he closes his eyes and starts meditating again. And so Kedarnath Babu comes in a few, you know, 15, 20 minutes later. Yogananda meets him outside and he goes, Are you Bhagavati's son? He goes, Yeah, but how did you know? He goes, Oh, the Swami came into the market where I was and I saw him there and he told me. And then he, you know, walked back faster than I could. So I couldn't keep up with him. And, and Mukunda's like, but the guy's been sitting here for the whole hour, last hour. He clearly didn't leave. And the guy asked a really interesting question. And I think this is an important question. He goes, are we living in a material world or are we dreaming? Right. And that I think is an important distinction. And so, you know, part of the reason for the cities is to show that these advanced adepts realize that the material world isn't so material, right? It's the same message we're starting to realize. With modern science and with quantum mechanics, Uh, Yogananda said, you know, if it must be so, let man learn from science that there is no material world. It's the warp, it's warp and woof is Maya or illusion, right? And that was the same message that, you know, these saints have been telling us. But at the same time, you know, Yogananda was told, you know, don't get too obsessed with these cities or superpowers because you won't get to that final liberation, which, you know, is what the yogis are aiming for
0: those are fantastic stories. And it definitely brings up the veracity of them. And you share in your book that there was a woman who was researching in the Vatican who was able to find similar stories of precognition, telepathy bilocation, and certainly parapsychology now has lots of evidence that shows that these abilities do actually and can happen.
1: Uh, yeah. So, you know, during the writing of this book, I interviewed uh, Diana Pasolka, who's a professor of religion at uh, University of North Carolina. And, you know, she wrote a a well-known book now on on, on UFOs called Amer- uh, American Cosmic UFOs, Technology and Religion. Uh, and, you know, I, I interviewed her to ask her about, you know, these, these miracles. And she said, well, when she was a kid, uh, she read Yogananda's Autobiography. She grew up in San Francisco. Her parents had it on the shelf. And, and she believed everything as a kid, because in the Catholic traditions, you know, saints are doing all kinds of things. And, but then when she became a professor and entered into academia, she was kind of indoctrinated into this point of view, okay, these things didn't necessarily happen. Uh, the miracles in the Bible, all of these things. Uh, we, we study religion as more of a social phenomenon, right? It's stories that people tell each other. And so, you know, she kind of bought that party line. But then later, as she started to look into some of these anomalies and find, you know, these weird stories, she actually, you know, her field of study is is Catholicism. And so she was granted access at the Vatican to their private archives. And she looked at the canonization records of Joseph of Cupertino. And so Joseph was a saint who supposedly floated up, you know, in, in, in the plaza. And she said she saw the records put out by the devil's advocate. Right. And that is the, the person that the church assigns to disprove this whenever they hear of a miracle, you know, and, and this guy was, in her own words, a big time rationalist, right? Meaning this didn't happen. He couldn't have floated. Must be a bunch of BS. And so he went out to try to disprove it. But she found in the record that there were over a thousand people who had seen, you know, Joseph of Cupertino float up in the middle of the square. Uh, and so she came to believe that these things have been actually, you know, could have actually happened. Uh you know certainly within the catholic traditions and there's no reason they couldn't have happened within the yogic traditions which has more stories of those and so yogananda may in fact be re- re- you know just reporting on things he's actually seen or in some cases what his guru and other folks that he talked to you know had seen and there there are a ton of stories like these in there. And and so you know that's kind of where i think uh, we need to be open minded about this stuff and that's one of the you know, people say, why do not include these stories? Well, one, they make the book more interesting. Two, he was trying to get Westerners in the 19, you know, whenever he wrote it, which was the 1930s through 40s, interested in yoga. Uh, and, but at the same time, uh, you know, I think he believed all of these things had really happened and he had witnessed many of them himself, including his guru, who was, you know, miles away appearing to him in the flesh and telling him he was on the next train. There was a story about that as well. Which was you could call it a bi-location story, you could call it a, tel- a story of telepathy. I mean there's different and, and with all the paranormal phenomena that people report. I think, you know, we need to take these stories more seriously and and take them at face value that these things might happen. And then as we look for a way to understand how these things, you know, are are possible. Uh, it it gives, it opens up our mind, right? I think that's the key point here, particularly those of us in the West. I interviewed another religious studies professor. Uh, It was on a different subject, but similarly, and he was early Christianity, uh, you know, he was a professor of early Christianity, and he said, you know, in academia, it's either like, okay, these miracles aren't happening today, so they must not have happened back then. That's the default attitude, you know, or you know, if you're a devout Christian, you say they happen exactly the way that they did. right? But he said there's a third option, which is that there are ways yogis and other folks who know how to do this, uh, who are adept adapted, it, it, they, they, that this may have actually happened. And that's a different way to think about it. We don't have to necessarily be a devotee of that religion to believe that these things actually happen. Part of
0: the development of Yogananda's Story, his life, his karma—was this amulet that was he was given by his own mother? Can you share about that?
1: Yeah, so this was you know an interesting story of a magical object, if you will, what what he calls an astral object. And so what happened was when when Yogananda was a baby, baby Makunda, uh, in the city of Lahore. This is you know kind of near where I was born and where I lived, where my parents lived. Um, uh, his mother had a visit from a strange sadhu right, uh, who knocked on their door and said, I wish to speak to the mother of Mukunda. And so he was bringing a message from uh, Yogananda's parents, Guru Lahiri Mahashai, who had blessed the baby when he was younger. Uh, and he said, so I, I'm looking for the mother of Mukunda, and she was there. And he basically told her that tomorrow, while she's meditating, this silver amulet will appear in her hands, and that You know, she may be going through some health issues in the future. Uh, and she was to give that to her oldest son, Ananta, uh, to give to Mukunda one year after she dies. Right. And so it's kind of a a little bit of a morbid message there to get, you know, but the next day she was meditating and she got the, she got an an amulet materialized in her hands. And so, you know, Yogananda Mukunda, as I mentioned, was always trying to run away from home. Uh, and his mother, after his mother died, he was devastated. And that was a major, major event in his life. And he was still, you know, just a boy, uh, when that happened. And he, and, uh, you know, that was one of the reasons why he, he so identified with the Divine Mother. And in a lot of the stories, there's, you know, prayers from him to the Divine Mother. And w- what happened was he was going to run away again. He was, I think, maybe almost a teenager at this point. And his, Older brother, about a year after she had, his mother had died, said, "Well, okay, I wasn't going to give you this. I wasn't going to give you this, even though our mother told us to, because I I think it's going to make you want to run away, and you're too young to run away yet to go be a monk." But he gave him the amulet anyway, uh, and he told him the story of, of what had happened and where the amulet had come from. And you know, as soon as Yogananda held the amulet, it became you know, he felt the surge of energy, and, and and it was enough to satisfy him that. And he didn't run away <laughs> to become a monk. He kept living at home. And then later, when he did graduate from high school, which he only did because his father insisted that he graduate from high school, he ran away to an ashram in Benares. Right? And the only thing he took with him was this magical amulet. And he thought, okay, finally, I'm gonna go be a monk, right? Uh, and then what happened was in this ashram, he was disappointed because he wanted to spend his time meditating. And they, everybody else was, no, you need to be doing all these you know, tasks, organizational tasks, Sweeping the floor, all these tasks, and he just couldn't find enough time to meditate, and so he was very unhappy there uh and This was really the only possession that he had there and Then there was one morning when uh he looked in the in the kind of closed envelope where this amulet was, and it had disappeared, and he was you know wondering what happened because it wasn't open like how uh and it was that day that he went on an errand with one of the other boys in Benares and he came across his guru in the streets of Benares, and he recognized, at first he didn't recognize him, but as soon as he passed him, it was like this strong message in his head, you need to go back. And then he he looked at him again, and he recognized him from visions that he had had while he was meditating. Uh, And turns out Sri Yukteswar was, like I said, only a few miles away from Calcutta, is where he lived, but he happened to be in Benares on that day. And so, you know, they, he told him that was the purpose of the amulet was to kind of hold you over, and it disappeared back to whence it came. It was an astrally produced object that, that disappeared uh, since it was time for you now uh, to come and, and you know, be my student. And, of course, Yogananda decided to be his student and went back to Calcutta. And to his dismay, though, Yipta Swar said, you have to finish college, <laughs> and, and only then will you be my student because they had a sense that he might be going to the West in the future. And, and, and there were other little premonitions, you know, around that whole idea of East and West and what Yogananda's life mission might be that, that came around that time, but that was the story of the end.
0: And his guru wanted him to go to college so that he could become more educated and understand English so that he could influence the West.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, there was another story about his guru, Sri Yuktasar, when he was young. And he was at uh, the Kumbha Mela in Allahabad. The Kumbha Mela is like one of the world's largest festivals. It's a religious festival. And it happens every 12 years. And there's like a million people there. At least there, you know, there there have been. I I don't know exactly what years it's now. Uh, And he went there. As a young man, and he looked around, and there were all kinds of you know weird sadhus and people doing strange things, uh, and it was when he went to uh, there that uh, this 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 young sadhu came up to him and said, "Oh, there's a saint over there, and he wants to talk to you." And he said, "Okay." So he walks over to the saint, and he, he could feel that okay, this was a real kind of enlightened saint, and he started talking to him, and, and he said, I, "I see, Yukteswar, that you've been thinking that the the men of the west." who are so advanced in science and materiality, you know, perhaps are, are better than all these dirty sadhus who are walking around, you know, half naked. Uh, and uh, you know. But there is a balance between East and West, right? That India can benefit from the material advances in the West, but the West could benefit from the spiritual, you know, kind of undertakings and underpinnings of life. Uh, That yoga represents, he said. You know, he said to Yukteswar, you know, yoga is a golden middle path between activity and you know calmness, and that's why it's really important to be out there. and And then he said, Swamiji, I'd like to give you a task. And he said, First of all, I'm not a Swami. He goes, Oh, don't worry, you will be. (laughs) And he says, The task is, I want you to write a book about the the similarities between some of the Christian scriptures and the Hindu scriptures. And of course, Yukteswar said, really? That's a tough, time. I don't feel ready to do that. But it, again, it was a task that was given to him. <laughs> and he went about and he completed that task. And that book is now, you know, available. It's called The Holy Science. It's a, it's a short book. But that task, you know, laid the seeds because Babaji told Yukteswar, again, according to the Yogananda story, that he would send him a disciple who would go to the West to carry the message of yoga. And so it was important that Yukteswar had this grounding. And, and of the scriptures, because if you read the autobiography of the Yogi there's a lot of biblical quotes in there, right uh, and you know part of the reason is you know it was for the West, it was a Christian country, but part of it is because you know he actually came to believe that there were lots of similarities uh between you know those scriptures, and part of that was because his guru had delved so deeply into that and taught him about that, and so you can see how the elements of the karmic task I talk his karmic task was to bring yoga to the West, but there were elements of the story that needed to be there in order for that to happen, including this random invitation at the end, which didn't make a lot of sense, but happened where he was supposed to be the representative at that conference in Boston.
0: Yeah, there certainly are a lot of similarities between yoga philosophy and Christianity. I mean, we look at the history, it seems that maybe they were all spending time with each other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, depending on what you believe, you know, uh, there are stories of 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 Christ going up into the Himalayas and uh you know in certain traditions uh in Yogananda's tradition, you know they talk about Babaji as being not just a hundred or two hundred years old but many hundreds of years old, and supposedly he initiated Kabir, who was a a medieval uh poet who was the Sufi and the Hindu, and he pissed off the Muslims and the Hindus and they kicked him out of Benares. and you know he had a famous famous uh, quote in his poetry is now quite famous, like along with Rumi's is one of the kind of well-known poets from that tradition, where he said, you know, I am neither at Kailash or in the Kaaba, you know, which talking about Hinduism and Islam in that case, and and supposedly, you know, if you go even further back, Shankara, who reorganized the whole Swami order, who lived around 800 AD, you know, supposedly Babaji met initiated him as well. Now, you know, how do how do we know if that happened or not? That's that That's a different story, you know, that's a different question. But I did ask around if there were other sightings or other traditions that relate to Babaji, uh, you know, that, that maybe weren't from directly from Yogananda. Uh, just because as modern readers, we tend to be a little more skeptical, right? As a modern, you know, uh, yogi, you're, you're not necessarily devoting your whole life to one guru, you're getting information from different places. Today we can, all the Indian gurus around today are on YouTube you know, and we can uh, go ahead and, you know, we can find out about all that stuff. So um, so anyway, there were other references to him from some other folks who claim to be of traditions that came off what I call the river of yoga, right? So you've got all of these tributaries that trace themselves back to Babaji.
0: All of this information is so wonderful. Thank you so much, Riz. Is there anything else you want to share today about yoga wisdom for modern seekers?
1: I would emphasize, uh, you know, what I said earlier, one of the lessons in the book is practice every day, no matter how much time you have, right? And I uh, I mentioned the actual definition of yoga, right? It's not you have to spend an hour doing the asanas, you know, which you might want to do, but it's about the stilling of these rittis. And anyone who's done like a physical yoga session knows at the end, you often do shavasana, right? Where you're laying in corpse pose or translation that I like better is peaceful pose. Uh, and at the end, it feels like something is still, right? Something that was not still. And there are the physical benefits, there's the stress benefits, but that alone is the practice of yoga. And so if there's anything that you can do in your life on a daily basis, even if it's, you know, five minutes of quiet meditation, or, you know, when I lived in Silicon Valley, which is actually where I happen to be at the moment, I, I'm just down the road from Google. And, you know, Silicon Valley is a place of frenetic activity and, you know, lots of business and tech. uh, But there's a little park next to it called Shoreline Park. It's right on San Francisco Bay. And I go there and I feel like I'm hundreds of miles away, you know, from the frenetic activity of Silicon Valley. And there's this breeze coming in from the bay. And even just a short walk there is enough to still the vrittis, right? It's, basically doing what yoga is supposed to accomplish. And so there are many different practices, and types of yoga, whether it's karma yoga, uh, bhakti of devotion, raja yoga, um, then there's kundalini yoga, right? There's so many different, but really it's about whatever practice in whatever spiritual tradition you're in, uh, where you can kind of calm the mind, still things. So that snow globe, which we're constantly shaking, imagine having a snow globe and all you do is you just keep shaking it all day, right? You want to let it settle, at least for a little while, Uh, and that I think is the most important practice of all.
0: Beautiful and inspirational messages. Thank you so much, Riz, for being with me here today. It's been such a joy.
1: Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me on with you guys again.
0: And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free
1: at newthinkingaloud.org.